Tyler Parker. And I'm Ashley Hamilton. And this is Celebrity Memoir Book Club. The podcast where we take a look in some books and we throw a little magic spell on top of it and tell it back to you with a little sparkle and pizzazz and maybe a flower and a Greek myth. I really, I think I say this every week, but there was like an intention behind what you're doing right now. Yes. And so if you don't want that version of it, our version, then maybe just buy the book in the store or on a used book website, perhaps, to save the environment. But if you do like the way we tell it with our twists and our turns and our joie de vie, then come on with us. Beautiful. The least efficient thing I've ever seen week after week, getting further from the truth. A Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox. You guys, we are coming live. Some people call that art. We are coming live to do our true art, our real art, our IRL art to Phoenix, Arizona and Los Angeles, California. Los Angeles is almost sold out. If you're hearing it now, I would run and get tickets ASAP. Run. They sell out and then people are always like, damn, I wish I had known. I'm like, well, they were on sale for like five months. Phoenix, Arizona, we cannot wait to see you. The 18th, the 19th. We have recently added Vancouver on the 15th. No. Of February. Oh, yeah. And then we are doing Moon Tower in Austin. I don't think tickets are available yet, but we're coming live a lot. We, we're back 2024. We're running our butts off. Thank you guys so much to everyone who's come out and seen us. The Christmas Spectacular was incredible. It was spectacular. And I'm so excited. If you are interested in what we do in the live show, it is not just a regular podcast. It is a super podcast. It's a cool podcast. We do stand-up. We do an essay. So we do like a quick little speedy version of the podcast. And then we play games. We ask questions. It's live. It's in your face. It's completely different every time. We're so excited to come see you guys live. If you've already seen us in LA, it'll be a completely different show than last time. We love you. We hope to see you. We always do a meet and greet. And then also we are selling merch afterwards. It's these incredible tube socks that I actually wear a lot because you guys know I have a sock problem. And it's the only merch we have at the moment because our merch company went out of business in the dead of the night during December. Oh, yeah. We got hot tea. There was an embezzlement thing. Yeah. If there is merch that you're waiting on, if you're waiting on something that you ordered and you did not receive, we have no access to it and we have no access to the company itself. So you will have to file a credit card dispute and let us know if you have trouble. We're happy to help in any way. I feel really bad that this happened. It was really cool of them to do this to us like two weeks before Christmas. But Yeah, there was a lot of people waiting on holiday orders. So we're so sorry. And if you have a friend or a sister or a girlfriend or a wife or a whatever who was expecting merch for Christmas, we are more than happy to send everybody a personal little video apologizing, explaining what went on. Or just saying hello, happy birthday, etc. So DM us, let us know. We'll see you at the shows. We'll see you in our tube socks. And okay, this is a 2024 thing that I told somebody in the DMs, but I'm actually going to tell you, Ashley, right now. Oh. I want to like get back on our meetup grind. Yeah, me too. I think too. we fell off of it a bit just because there was so much going on all the time. But I really am recommitted to one of the key tenets of this podcast, which is making friends as an adult. We have like a lot of success stories. That sounds crazy, but we just went to Philly and it's one of the first cities we've done twice. And so many people came to the show together that they met at the first show. They've made book clubs in their city. It really is a great place to make friends, and we want to make sure it's as easy as possible for you guys. So I think at all of the venues, we will let you know where to go. A lot of times yeah. it'll just be at the comedy club itself. We'll like set up a section at the bar with icebreakers. But I promise you this is something that we're working on. It's something that I really want to work hard on. Yeah, I really like when people can come hang out, have a drink, have a chat before the show. I think it's a really fun way to meet local wormies. And Ashley. Yes, Claire. If you were a celebrity and this week was a chapter in your memoir, what would the title be and why? 
I would call this chapter, wow, there's so much time when you don't have anything to do. I just had an incredible week last week. We had the week off and it was the week post-holidays. This is the first episode we've recorded in like a month. I mean, we had other stuff to do and we recorded a bunch before the holidays, but this is our first new episode back. And, you know, I spent last week really just like organizing my life, checking things off my to-do list, finishing a lot of things that I like left untied up before the holidays. And I was like, ugh. I'm so productive. And then I was like, oh, no, it's like not that hard to be moderately productive when you have no actual commitments during the day. I think I'm anti-travel. I think as Americans and internationally, (laughs) we've mixed up travel with vacation. So we all say we love traveling when what we mean is like we love free time. And I think one of my goals for this year is to travel less. I want to travel more, but like in a very specific and prescribed way where I don't view that as necessarily a vacation. Like I don't think travel is relaxing. I think that like travel is exciting. Uh I think that taking time off is relaxing. I want to take time off and then just sit my ass at home and go through a closet. Yeah. Oh, my God. I went through every cabinet in my home. It was so thrilling. It was truly that was the excitement. The journey for me was that I went through every cabinet and just like organized items. And then I like donated a ton of items. And I went to a clothing swap the other day and I just like swapped some shit. I like I open up cabinets now and I go, ah, that thing that I was looking for. There it is. Unblocked by other things. I love that for you. Thank you. Claire, Mm -hmm. if you were to describe your week, how would you title the chapter? Mia culpa. Oh. Do you know what that means? That's a lovely name for a girl. It means my bad in Latin. (laughs) (laughs) It's Olivia Culpo's daughter, (laughs) Mia. What was your bad? You know, I took a really long vacation. I went on a vacation with my husband and his family. It was like two weeks. I think that's the longest vacation I've ever been on in my life. I think it's the longest vacation anyone's been on. I was just gone forever. I came back to the city and was like, I don't know a person. I don't know a soul. I don't even, I can't remember where I live. I was gone for so long and I was like really at that point where I was like, I cannot wait to get home and just like hit the ground running. I'm going to cold plunge. I'm going to get dressed. So I was just like really excited. I like organized my whole week. And then right out the gate, I was late to a pretty important meeting that we had. So my day started today at 1.30 p.m. on a Zoom call in this studio. And already I I lost it. It was brutal. And you know, I like being on time, especially for meetings. And so it was really hard for me. And then so I just want to say I'm sorry that I'm feeling like a dickwad. Well, you know, maybe the year starts tomorrow. There's always tomorrow. But isn't that just the way? (laughs) (laughs) What happened is I'm replaying my brain what went wrong. Sure. One, it was like I was not honest with myself. The truth is for me to absolutely make sure I'm at the studio if I'm taking the bus, I have to leave 35 minutes early. The other thing I have to be honest about is that the bus is not reliable. I know I'm like a diehard MTA bus girl, and I have to just like be honest. It's not the subway. No. For me to take the subway here is a lot of stairs. Yeah. And at one point I even said, should I bike? But I didn't know how cold it would be. Anyway, better luck next year. (laughs) January 2025. I'm going to be right on time. You can bet your bottom dollar. Look out, world. Here she comes. Should we get into this week's book? Will you pronounce it for me? So this book is a really like interesting take on memoir, which I think that is something that I would like to see in more memoirs, like not the overall structure of this, but the way she explains what it is. We are reading Grimoire Girl by Hilary Burton Morgan. 
Grimoire is a word that Claire had literally never heard, which I think is so crazy because it is a word that is just like a part of everyday vocabulary for me and girls who watch Charmed. Like, <laughs> <laughs> She had me at Barnes and Nobles and she just kept saying it. I was like, could you spell it for me? Because I've never heard this in my life. I was very shocked by that. I think that I've just watched too many witchy bitchy shows to not think that this is a word that people just know of. Grimoire, for those of you guys who don't know, G-R-I-M-O-I-R-E is like a traditional like witch collection of knowledge and spells and information that are like by the family. At first I didn't, I was like, I don't know what this word means. And I read this book on a plane and I was like, I can't even look it up. And by the end of the book, I was like, oh, I have never known what a word meant more. This yeah. word is so deep in my psyche now. And I think that this is a word that is very like integral to a successful memoir. It is supposed to be the like planting of the seeds of like your knowledge and experience. I'm going to have to tell you guys something straight up top. I don't know if it's because it's the first memoir I read this year and I'm in my manifestation, strong mood, vision board, build your life place. I don't know if it's because I read it on an airplane and everything you consume on an airplane makes you cry. And I don't know if it's just because I read all about love and I'm working with a love ethic. I don't know if it's because do you feel this as our group specifically or do you think this is the year of I find a lot of people I know this is the year of earnestness. Is that because I know people in their early 30s or is that a universal thing that people are feeling? I think it's happening. I just feel like we're like we need to just start trying to be nice to each other and building with vulnerability. And I think it's happening to people who are watching society. Last year, a lot of people were being like, something's got to change. And this year we came to the conclusion and it's like, I got to open my little heart up. Yeah. This book, I loved. (laughs) I cried. I highlighted. I turned to Mac. I was using it like a workbook. This book has everything that we normally don't like in a memoir, but I think she did it well. It has the elements we normally don't like in a memoir presented with the behaviors of what we do like in a memoir. This is good Joanna Gaines. Yes. It's a workbook and it doesn't have that much personal story, but it does have like heart and earnestness and like love and... I believe her. Yes. She has the opposite of what we call influencer disease. Well, there's a lot of them, but... (laughs) One of the diseases. One of the many diseases is somebody who every three months has a brand new prescription for how to live life that they're going to tell you about that's going to like make you happy that then three months later, they're going to be like, that didn't work at all for me. What I'm actually doing this like, what you need to be doing is intermittent fasting. And then three months later, they're like, actually, intermittent fasting led my heart to exploding. What you need to be doing is 17 small meals a day. And then actually what you need to be doing is all protein nonstop with an IV. And they're like, actually, it turns out that losing weight was not making me happy and I need a different goal. And I'm just like, why don't you just live a minute? I believe that Hillary Burton lives her life every day with intention and has sown and harvested the flowers of her blooms or whatever. And I just think, <laughs> I just think she's living the life that she wants. She saw things in her life that she didn't like. And she worked every day intentionally and consistently to build out the life she wants. It's Drew Barrymore-esque to me. Yes. You can be happy. You just have to like try. And you have to try every day. So she says, this is my grimoire, my own personal collection of rituals and practices, beliefs, and knowledge. As the pieces came together, I started to see threads of a journey I've been on, a quest that led me through the dark woods and delivered me to a new understanding of home full of magic I accumulated along the way. And so like, yes, her pointing to magic and spells and, you know, all these things have like a very cringe quality to them. But it is so earnest that I really respect it and enjoy it. And it like made me think a lot about my own life and like what 
are my rituals? What are my totems? Who are my muses? Like these things where I was like, I don't know, this is important stuff where I like wouldn't not recommend this book. Magic. I was worried. I opened this book and I go, oh no, she's going to be like, stand on your toes and eat a newt. But really, she uses it as this playful way to make fun and exciting the things that we know to be true, which is, as you said, habits. Yes. It's habits, it's intention, it's perspective. And she gives it this magical tint. But sorry, we're so New Year's-y. <laughs> we, I've been like really in my woo-woo, like opening myself up to every sort of like idea and thought and manifestation and like conversation with everyone. And I really feel like it's going to make my life better. Like, on New Year's Eve, my friend was like, do you want to go scream into the East River? And I was like, yes. Like we were in Northern Greenpoint, not that far from Transmitter Park. And so we just like went onto the pier and just like screamed away the things that we don't want from 2023 and like welcomed the things we do want from 2024. And I think that me two years ago would have heard that I did that and been like, <laughs> dork. But now I'm like, I don't, it felt so good. Okay, so this thing I saw was name three things that made you happy this year that weren't friends or family. Oh, my God. And I don't think they're saying, oh, friends and family should make you happy. But it is a way of thinking that I think is so different than what we're used to because we're used to being like, oh, the moral of the story is I love being around people. But when you take them out, it's like, okay, what are you doing for yourself every day that makes you happy? Mm -hmm. And I asked this group of people I was with and they all at first were like, oh, I can't think of anything and I couldn't think of anything. And then as you start getting into the habit, it's very much like a gratitude list, but it is tiny little rituals of like your coffee in the morning. I've really loved lighting candles at night. Just little things like that that make you happy mm -hmm. and the ways that you can do it every day. Anyway, sorry, guys. We're being real corny on Maine. I'm going to stay corny on Maine this year. Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying I just read All About Love by Bell Hooks, and we're going to talk about it on the Patreon. I want Ashley to read it, too, so we can discuss it. I just it. got it from the library. Shout out. Library. It did change my life and I'm excited to talk about it with you. I really encourage it as a read, as a great way to start your year and like think about what matters to you and stuff. So I am trying to live my life with a love ethic. <laughs> that being said, I have to read you guys one of the most shocking, startling sentences I've ever seen in my life. Once my daughter, George, was born, I started collecting scraps of information and I said, that's a joke. <laughs> Your daughter's not named George. My daughter's name is George. That's crazy. <laughs> I feel like I read it over it and I was like, I get that it's non-tradish, but like Blake Lively's daughter is named James. Can I say it's different than James because phonetically James is beautiful. I feel like it didn't strike me because I always called my grandma, Grandma George, even though her name isn't George. I, my grandpa called her that for a reason I actually don't know. And then I overheard it. And just started calling her Grandma George. And then like on that whole side of the family, I'm not even the oldest. I'm an influencer. I've been an influencer from day one. A baby George. I was like, oh, cute name for a girl. I'm going to bite my tongue, but I don't find it to be a cute name for anybody. And that's what I was so it. shocking. Of, like all the men's names. I, I don't even think there's baby boys named George anymore. And that's what's so crazy. I like love the name George. But you said Bug could have been named George. And I said Bug would have been named George. But my Grandma George was still alive when Bug was born. And in Judaism, you like don't name people after living relatives. And I said that disparagingly because to me, she's like. I said it in absolute earnest. Bug's spirit is the shape of one of those Easter Island giant stone heads. What? <laughs> Just goofy and rough and huge. And like, there's something so clunky about her personality. I know she is light on her feet. But to me, her personality is somebody who like. <laughs> has no. heavy steps all the time. Not to me. Anyway, what I was saying is. She 100% would have been named George. Yeah, she should have been George. That's too bad. 
You know that 4 p.m. craving when you don't want to eat a full, like, large snack before dinner, but you're craving a little something to chomp on? You don't want to have sweets because it's what your heart desires, but it's not what your body needs. What you're looking for is chomps. Chomps make snacking simple. The tasty meat sticks are packed with mouthwatering flavor and only the best real ingredients. Each delicious Chomps meat stick has the protein your body needs, up to 12 grams per stick, without any unhealthy additives and zero grams of sugar. They're low-carb, keto-friendly, allergy-friendly, and they don't contain any fillers. Chomps are simply made with natural ingredients that you can feel good about. It's the most incredible grab-and-go snack. You can just keep them in your pantry, grab them on your way out the door, eat them while you walk. Chomp sticks come in nine flavors, so there's something for everyone. Or you can grab a variety pack to try everything and satisfy your entire family's taste buds. Chomps are great on their own, or you can pair them with everything from fruit to hummus to crackers for basically a charcuterie board in seconds. With thousands of five-star reviews, snackers around the world have satisfied their hunger cravings with Chomps. Even better, you can order online and have them delivered straight to your door. You can even subscribe for ongoing savings. Right now, Chomps is offering our listeners 20% off your first order and free shipping when you go to chomps.com slash worm. Go to chomps.com slash worm to see all the delicious flavors and get 20% off your first order and free shipping. That's C-H-O-M-P-S dot com slash worm. Don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. She describes a grimoire, what was important to me, which parts of my life were worth keeping and which were old phases meant to be discarded. So this is how she's like going through and telling her life story and like figuring out what should be in her grimoire. And I found that to be a very like interesting and inspiring method of like writing down your life story. Me too. I love this idea of because she's big on the inheritance and she's like nobody at the end of your life is like, I guess I don't want to say nobody. Some people are very excited about the things. Yeah. (laughs) But she's like, what I want to pass down to my children is memories, traditions, beliefs, moments. And I think that that's very beautiful. And it comes from this place of she was raised and she doesn't get into why, but she did not know any of her extended family. She only knew her two parents and it seems like she has a few brothers. Yeah. But she did not know her grandparents. She did not know cousins. And she's like, it made me feel very lonely. And something interesting about her is from even a young age, she was always adopting older people and adopting herself into other people's families. And I find that to be a really beautiful quality to see what you are missing and build it yourself Mm -hmm. because it's not her fault that she was born into a family where they're not close with their grandparents, but she recognized it. It wasn't necessarily the blood. It was the mentorship and it was the love and, and the stories to be passed down. So she just got other people's stories. And now she's doing it for her children. She's like, I didn't get what I wanted, but I'll do it for them. So before we dive too far in, can we say her birthday? So Hillary was born July 1st, 1982, making her 41 years old. Yeah, this book came out in 2023. And also for those of you who don't know, Hillary Burton Morgan, she was the star of One Tree Hill. She played Peyton Sawyer. She was also in the show White Collar. Was she big in the show White Collar? Yeah. You were a big One Tree Hill girl, huh? I was also a big White Collar girl. That sounds about right. Teen drama in the USA Network, right? Everything I've ever loved. (laughs) And then her husband, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, is motherfucking Denny Duquette from Grey's Anatomy. And he's been in like a lot of other stuff, I think, more prominently. But like, wow, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And they were on The Walking Dead together. Yes. I think he was like the star of The Walking Dead. And I think or maybe he was like bigger on it. And I think she did an arc. So chapter one, inheritance. I didn't come from a connected family. It's not my place to talk about the decisions my parents made with their own relatives. That said, I haven't spent meaningful time with either side of the family in almost 30 years, and I'm okay with that. So she 
talks about how she just didn't have that like family lore that she's always been interested in. But what she did have was these old antique pieces of furniture in her parents' house that would be filled with receipts and photos and kind of hints and clues and recipes to who her parents used to be, where they came from, who they were as a family. And she treasured these pieces of information as a little girl. And then when her parents delivered her this like credenza, they'd cleaned it out before they gave it to her. And she felt like she lost everything. And that's one of the things that inspired her to start writing down her stories and her memories and her spells because she wants to be able to give her children this inheritance. Without a story passed down to me, it was up to me to write my own story, to take the mismatched china, the chipped dining table, the empty credenza, and fill them in with the memories of my childhood, crafting an inheritance for myself. And not just for myself, I started to wonder, how do I play an active role in crafting my children's inheritance while I'm very much still here? When I die, what are they going to write about me? I do think that that is just so beautiful to say, like, I'm not passing down things. Because I think people don't think about it that way. Like, I have never read this anywhere, I don't think, to say, like, what are you passing down in terms of, like, stories and ideas and behaviors. And when you think about the people that in your family, like people you've lost and whatever, like I wear my grandma's watch, like I have all these things, but I don't think about those things when I think of them. I think about their like unique behaviors and like the things that I see in my mom that my grandma did or the things that I see in me that like I got from relatives, like all these family things. How many families do you like, oh, that's a Hamilton thing or like, oh, that's a so-and-so thing. Like you just see these behaviors and you like think about them. And that is much more beautiful than stuff. I think the most common way it's done is through recipes. Mm -hmm. But then also I think a lot of people have cultures where you have traditions that go back to like your, you know, I mean, your town or your country or wherever you're from ethnically. And I will say as somebody with no ethnicity, really, (laughs) I I don't feel I have any culture. Yeah. (laughs) There's nothing that I do that I'm, we have one thing and it's actually the eggnog that my dad makes. I feel like that's like the one thing in my family that is so specifically like, my grandma did this. My dad did this. Yeah. But I'm like, I've always felt that I'm like, oh, there's nothing I really do that I'm like, oh, and this is just how my great grandma did it. My mom and I used to make banana bread all the time. And one time I texted her asking her for the recipe. And she was like, I don't just Google banana bread. It's like the regular recipe. And I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> I'm going to just write it down on a piece of paper and give it to Shayla and be like, this is the family recipe. <laughs> if our lives are our greatest art projects, let's get to crafting. So then she says, here's some tools to start your own grimoire. And she says, let's like collect things. Yeah. And it can be concert tickets. It can be photos. It could be postcards. It can be recipes. It can be dates. She says that like her and her husband celebrate May 8th, which is May 8th is Timmy Nolan Day, named after the Irish pub where they met. And they just like created their own holiday. And like that is something she'll pass down to her kids. It's like, this is our family holiday. You know what I was thinking about? Hmm. I did an AMA on Instagram the other day and somebody asked me like, how do you make a good friendship in your adulthood. And I didn't get around to answering it because I wanted to give it a lot of thought. So I'll probably answer it this week somewhere on my Instagram. Anyway, I think part of what structurally keeps relationships a priority, like romantic relationships a priority over friendships, is the holidays built into them. Like the idea of celebrating an anniversary, the idea of like Valentine's Day, then ultimately like holidays that you spend with your family and your romantic partners are considered your family over friends. Something that's really helpful is if you have a best friend, you guys should create an anniversary and celebrate it, especially if you're long distance. I feel like it's been kind of bastardized by these bachelorette parties and stuff. But I think fundamentally what a bachelorette party should be is forcing friends to hang out. And somehow it's gotten away from that because that doesn't sound so bad. And yet it seems like bachelorette parties are really ruining people's lives. But um, if you have a best friend, I recommend coming up with a date to celebrate each other. Yeah, we have an anniversary and we also have a holiday that we we celebrate with our friend Sophia. And of course... 
we see each other every day anyway, but I do think these things are really important to keeping friendships going, especially as your lives diverge Mm -hmm. and like the daily routine of it all. So if you're in college right now and scared about graduating and not seeing your friends every day, pick a holiday and at least once a year, there'll be this thing that you get to gear up for. Yeah, my friend, we were just talking about this actually. And she was saying that her and her best friend have this day where they like really dedicate a whole day to like pampering themselves, like a very treat yourselfy kind of thing. And they give themselves a range. I think they have like, it's a two month period where it has to fall within that range because they're like, we want to make sure we actually do it. If it's like one weekend specifically, you never know what'll come up. Give yourself a range, pick a thing, make it a holiday. Me and my mom used to do one. I used to skip a day of school every spring. Oh my God. And we would go to museums and then we'd go shopping and then we would go and get like an afternoon tea. Yeah. So there. Okay. So they do exist, but I, I recommend them. Just pick a day. And then she lists a bunch of books that she thinks are great for starting your witchy little library. Are you interested in reading any of these for the Patreon? I'll read the titles. Long Lost Friend, a 19th century American grimoire. This is about Appalachian medicine. We've got Italian folk magic, which is about all the healing capacity of food, which is midwives and nurses, which is about the demonization of women under the patriarchy and the medical industrial complex. We've got the powwow grimoire an encyclopedia of magic from the powwow tradition of the Pennsylvania German Christian community, Blackthorn's botanic magic. We've got Bellotto botany. Okay, I kind of want to do this one. Your face never lies. What your face reveals about you and your health, an introduction to oriental diagnosis by Michi Kushi. Michio Kushi is about Eastern guy to like looking at someone's face and diagnosing them with stuff, which I saw on Indian Matchmaker. And I was like, what's that about? I am interested in that one. I'm also interested in the scent one, essential oils for spellcraft, ritual, and healing. I've been really into scents lately. Awesome. We'll put this up on Instagram if you're interested. Okay. Name your home. So her home is a mischief farm. It sounds like a gorgeous farm up in the Hudson Valley. They're based out of there. And she talks about how they named it mischief farm because they love the idea of mischief. I love it too. Yeah. And I think that's like a very cute thing to bond a couple to be like, we love shenanigans and mischief yeah there's something very like impish about it and she said the man they bought it from loved his cats and he had two headstones for the cats mischief one and mischief two and that when you name a place it becomes so much more important and mystical and she's like your home is the cornerstone of your witchcraft because it's where you're safe okay honestly something really boring is later in this book she goes into every detail of her childhood bedroom but it did make me think about like where that nostalgic place is for me yeah and you know what it's not my childhood bedroom where is it? I think it's my first apartment. You love that apartment. I just like don't feel that tied to my childhood bedroom, but like the apartment I lived in from 21 to 29. I felt very tied to my apartment in LA. Like I lived there for five years and I feel like it really, really pivotal period of my life where like when I think about it and when I think about the address, I like feel very emotional. Like when I go to LA, I think every time we've gone, I drive past it. Like I love to just like go a tiny bit out of my way to like just go look at it. I think the interior of it isn't necessarily something that drives me, but like just the fact that it's there, like if it ever got torn down, I think that would be like so hard on me. Like when my parents moved out of my childhood home, I thought I'd be a lot more emotional and I just didn't care that much because I was like, I've grown past it, I think. But 4227, I think I would like have a hard time with. 156 Bedford. So she says when you just go by the generic number addresses of these homes, they don't mean as much. So why don't we practice that same connectivity with our homes? They're deserving of our affection. What will you name your home? Endow it with a character so that everyone from the mailman to your visiting in-laws knows what your home is about and where the magic lies. I will say I disagree. 156 Bedford is, I don't need to give it a name. I asked Mac, I go, should we name our home? And he just goes, no. 
<laughs> so you know what I realized about your current apartment? Because I've had to name all your different apartments in my Google Maps. Oh, yeah. Your current one is Ashley's Backyard. Oh, yeah. And your last one was Ashley Alone. <laughs> Okay. No, but that sounds bad. But I, I was so excited for you to live by yourself. I was excited about it. I was thinking about mine because whenever my friend was over, she was visiting and staying with me. And I like really feel very cottagey about my house. Like I know it's not teeny tiny. I guess if it was a standalone house, it'd be teeny tiny. But like there is just something very like it's a little cottage about it. I love it with your backyard. Yeah. It's got just as much square footage out of it as it does in it. Yes. I love it. I love it too. She also talks about how you can learn something about someone by finding out what their favorite type of body of water is. Where did this fall for you? Do you feel that you have a favorite type of water? Okay, I was thinking about it. And at first, I was like, oh, I guess ocean maybe. And then like, and then I realized, you know what it is? What? River. And you know why? Why? Okay, so the thing about corny stuff like this is I do believe whatever you get out of it is telling. In the same way that I did that horse therapy over my honeymoon. She says she's a river person, and I would say I'm a river person, but our reasonings are very different. So she says I'm a river person because they're always moving forward. There's like a current underneath that you don't know about. There's like a darkness, but it's always on the run. It's always going. I would say I'm a river person because where rivers are is where cities are formed. Interesting. And I feel like I more and more am thinking about how much I really love physically being in close proximity to other people, like community-wise. Mm-hmm. And famously, cities are born on rivers because that's where boats go. Yeah. Except for Atlanta, that freaky deaky landlocked place. <laughs> like, that's important to me is having like access to other pre- Like, I like where the hubbub of things. I like the hub. I like that. I'm a human hub. I love other people. And so I think I'm a river person. I've always lived near a river. And I always found it extremely disorienting to not be near a river. I don't go by north. I go by river. Interesting. So when I'm in Manhattan and when I'm in Brooklyn, north to me is completely different. Yeah. I think I'm a lake person and I haven't really fully unpacked why her reasoning didn't fully resonate with me but when I think about like where I'm most drawn to I think it's very lake oriented well I think you're a lake person I always say you have back of the class personality which is like you're not so loud you're not so like look at me you're not demanding in your presence but you have like a steady presence that's so funny you're saying something under your breath that everybody who can hear you is like laughing really hard and I think that that's how lakes are. They have a steadiness to them. They have an e- There's a tranquility at the top. And it can be very ocean-like. And there's something underneath that you just don't know what's going on. And it offers a lot of fun. I like that because I was really thinking about it. And I do think that like in my life, she talks a lot about like looking for signs and signals and the things that you are drawn to them, but they draw to you. And I'm like, well, Lake Michigan is obviously very important to me. I was just there. I brought Bug to Lake Michigan and I really loved bringing Bug to Lake Michigan You know, I accidentally have Lake Erie tattooed on my body. That's so funny. I like just like lakes. I think there's like a gathering aspect of lakes that like, of course, you like all go to the beach to the ocean or whatever. I feel like lakes are what you make of it. Yeah. Does that make sense? Like, I think you go to a lake and you bring your toys and you bring a floaty and there's a house. You're playing cards. There's something about a lake where you're like, it's not an ocean, but I bet we could. There's very stone soupy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. The other thing that I took away from this chapter is like the things that are important to you, like figuring out how they like, I don't know that I would necessarily like care what body of water people most identify with in day to day life. But I am like trying to think of what are the things that are important to me that I can like parse out in this way and like create my own astrology, my own little like definition system, because I think that that is kind of a fun way to like get to know people and to think about people in your life. She says her husband is an ocean person, and to her, that's because oceans are going out and then returning, and he travels a lot for work, but for him, 
the beauty is in the return that as far as he goes, he'll always come back. And I do think you could ask somebody else, why do you love oceans? And they'd have a completely different answer. Yeah. And so, I, yeah, I think it's less what you identify with and why. Yeah. And then she goes, we may as well address pool people while we're here. There's not a damn thing wrong with pool people. I was like, I didn't think there was until you said that. Okay. <laughs> there's something well, very funny like about being <laughs> something wrong with pool people. They like things tidy, clear, sanitized. They want to be able to see the bottom, the heat, to heat the water, to be in control. It's good to have a couple of those folks in your world, and it's perfectly fine to admit you're one of them. Yikes. It doesn't seem like it is fine. <laughs> but this is why it's so interesting to hear people's own explanations. I think it's more important to pick your body of water before hearing her definitions, because I think somebody would proudly say, well, I love a pool. And if you heard her describe pool, you'd be like, well, I'm not a pool person. Okay. So then she gets into Ithaca, her childhood home. The place that made me the nest in my heart. And this is where she really talks about where she was born, her childhood, and the return to Ithaca. She also like brings a lot of Greek mythology in here. And she'll be like, you don't understand how this applies to me. And like, sure, it applies to everyone. And I'm like, no, no, I think that's the point of like all of these stories. They are supposed to deeply apply. Yeah. There's only like 15 experiences in humanity. And that's why reading books like The Odyssey is so important because that's like the great thing about books and stuff is you think you're doing something alone and then you go, oh, people have been feeling this way for 2000 years and it doesn't matter if cell phones are involved. It doesn't matter if it happened on Gchat. The pain is the pain, whether you're in a Trojan horse or in a Subaru. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's a lot of like, you can't go home again in here. So for those of you who don't know the story of the Odyssey, he has to go out and fight. He leaves his beautiful wife, Penelope, behind after they win the war. He like kills, I think the Cyclops is, his, is Poseidon's son. And as a punishment, it takes him 10 years to get back home. And so the war was 10 years. His journey home is 10 years. I think the Iliad is the war and then the Odyssey is the return. But so he's going back to his wife after 20 years. And he's obsessed with getting it home. But the question is, can you go home? Can you ever truly return home? The Ithaca of his mind, the home he yearned for and fought for, is that really what he returned to? 20 years had passed. Can you ever truly return home? So she talks about wanting to return to her Ithaca, which was literally a house on Ithaca Street. But you can't really return home, but you can create Ithaca for like she wants to create Ithaca for her children. She's like, what does it mean to create home and like life and comfort and safety? And so she's building Ithaca. I did return to my Ithaca after my daughter was born. It was as if an internal compass kept pointing me there. Like Odysseus, I'd spent 20 years battling repulsive monsters, cough, our bosses on One Tree Hill cough. We're going to talk about that on the Patreon. Yeah, she gets into how toxic One Tree Hill is, but in no specifics. And I'm like, I need info. And luckily, Ashley is an O-T-H head. Doomed love affairs. Work that took me to cities in which I didn't belong and exciting, albeit exhausting adventures. It was time to go back to the home of my heart. Oh, my God. So now she gets into this thing called altars, which I was this was the first part of the book where I was like, oh, I actually think I'm going to take a lot of this into my life. Ooh, what were you going to take? Because she talks about like sacred spaces and she says my childhood bedroom was sacred to me. And I can't even go back and look at it in a different way. What was important to me was the posters and the bedding and like how I had things. And she says, at this point, I urge you to open up your grimoire and make a list of every minute detail you can about the home of your heart. To me, I realized that was my apartment in my 20s. And then she says, you can make a sacred space anywhere. So this is when she gets into altars about like, it doesn't have to be a whole room. It could just be a small group of artifacts that have meaning to you. So she says, it's important to pay attention to how we devote space. So identify a location in your home that you come into contact with on a daily basis. Populate your altar with items that are old to remind you of who you were. Sprinkle it with some new to commit to who you are now. Ground yourself with earth energy. Protect yourself with talismans. Add items to inspire you, to delight you, to make it a place in your home where you can center yourself and feel known. 
And then this is what I really liked. My current altar is right next to the kitchen sink. Each night as I wash dishes, I run through the items there in my head. A glass butterfly for my goddaughter as a thank you for believing in fairies. Dried flowers for my husband. Rue cuttings in a jar for my witch sister. A pendant of the three graces. A pottery skull box that Gus painted as a wee one. A deer jaw we found in the woods. It's a space that makes my mundane housework feel like an opportunity to reflect. So give yourself that space. Access to the divine and sacred isn't limited to religious establishments or the elite. It's your birthright. An altar that is a part of your everyday routine becomes a place to whisper gratitudes, utter protections, remember people, places, and times. These are the practices that transform chores into magical rituals conjuring your creativity. Wow. I think this is exactly what we're talking about, how it felt hokey and corny to be like, but I'm like, it's true. Taking those five minutes when I eat dinner to light the candles creates no longer this thing where I'm just like eating to live. It's like a moment where we're choosing to be like this is special and we appreciate it and it turns it into like a date yeah i feel like when you're just sitting down to like wolf some grub mm-hmm. you'll maybe you'll look at your phone the whole time but when you light the candles and you sit down to the table together you are like gonna reflect on your day and enjoy each other's company it's magical and it transforms it into an important time even we have like a poof next to our couch where you can put your feet up i've been putting stuff i like on it and we have like a little chess set that I love. And it does like having it there reminds me to play chess and like having art books. It just comes down to like put things that you love in your space to make you happy. But it works. And I like this idea of putting it next to your sink or somewhere where you are every day that's specific. I love the idea of using dishwashing time to like reflect. Yeah. Okay. So then she gets into Fountain of Youth, which is about her high school and how much she fucking loved her high school. She was a cheerleader and in the theater department, my senior year was my greatest adolescent achievement to combine my two deep loves, drama and cheerleading, by employing the theater department to bring in smoke machines and wild lighting to celebrate the football team's path to glory. It built a bridge to painfully different groups of kids uniting over a common goal, kicking our rival's ass. So her high school had this incredible pep rally and she was like, nobody was too cool for it. Everybody loved it. And there's something about having 1,200 people screaming in a room. It was so fun. And she says, is it all kind of silly in hindsight? Sure. Is it solving world hunger or fixing poverty? No. Or is it? And at first I said, okay, Hillary, you're about to lose me. You're losing me. (laughs) (laughs) And then she gets into how her high school, there are a lot of children who like don't have money for extracurricular activities. And she had never thought of extracurricular activities as a luxury. But now her high school was not going to have a football team because there weren't enough kids who wanted to play football because not enough kids could afford to like not have an after school job or afford the accoutrement that come with playing sports like cleats. So she and a group of other alum put together an organization that helped fund these items so that these kids could do the activities that like brought joy. She really did win me back. She went out and they created this group and they've been able to raise a lot of money for this school and help these kids. I do think something about her that I really respect, and I'd like to meet her to know who she's really like in real life. Me too. I do feel she puts so much effort into maintaining relationships. And later we'll get into There was these two people who formed that school, this couple who had no children, and they ended up helping her get into college. And literally to the time of writing this book, she stays in touch with them. And like when one of them dies, she drives down that day and like stays with the wife. And like she was writing letters with the husband. She's naming all these people she went to high school with and how incredible they are and how they've all bound together to try to raise some money. And I do think that's not an accident. Yeah, That's somebody who often and intentionally cultivates and nurtures relationships by getting involved, by building community, by staying in touch. And I think right now there's this epidemic of loneliness and people trying to like, I feel like a lot of people, especially post pandemic and with the internet and stuff, 
feel disconnected and don't know where to start and watching someone like this who does seem to have a lot of friends and seem to have a lot of roots and branches like the answer is trying and starting stuff and putting work into it Mm -hmm. but it works yeah it works if you work it (laughs) (laughs) talismans for your rebellion the purpose of a talisman is to attract a specific influence into the bearer's life and she talks about the importance of maintaining talismans when you're like rebelling against this book is kind of about how the status quo like creates lives that are not rewarding and you have to sort of rebel into the spaces that you find important like you have to rebel against society by like valuing things and people and causes what's your passion get involved and she really goes through and she's like give back that is how you rebel against the crushing pain of life and <laughs> and but it's true it's true no it's so I mean, true I'm, I'm sorry i keep talking about all about love but that's what she's saying like nobody doesn't feel so much better when they give back yeah And if you're looking for friends, go volunteer. You'll meet new people. And if you're trying to feel better about you, like it is the antidote to so much sadness because it does connect you and it does make you feel like part of a community. And that is what we all crave. Yes. And then she gets into spells and poetry. And this is following a chapter that we actually skipped because it's just about like a local legend in her town. But it's about how speaking with intent like creates things. And that's what spells are. Like they're words recited with intent and they can be prayers and they can be like they can be anything anything is a spell if you mean it and I think that that is something really important like I feel like everyone's looking for an anecdote like an easy route and you have to like say things and mean them and then act upon them and the spell will come true from time to time you'll catch a poem that will live in your head forever as a mantra and those are your spells my bird watching quote is my newest spell. I love it. Can you share it with the class? Because that was you really guys, good. Is that not I mean, so good? Me and Mac have really been thinking about getting into bird watching. I was like, this is it. This is everything I need in my life. Share it with them. Okay. So this doesn't even have to apply to bird watching. I'll break it down. There's a local bird watching club in the park by my house. And I always see them meet on Saturday mornings when I'm at the park with Bug. And they leave this whiteboard up for like the whole day so you can see what birds are spotted in the park that day and like what birds have been spotted lately. And so I like to stop and read the board. And there was a saying on the board. So this is January. It says winter birding is punk and metal, but it's not about numbers. It's about exercising awareness and getting zen. And this really struck me because you could replace winter birding with anything that you are passionate about. Like obviously people who are bird watching in the winter, like that is a very specific niche interest to say like, I love birding so much that I will do it rain or shine snow or sleet like I want to just get out there in the cold or the sun and watch some fucking birds but like anything that you really care about enough to do even when the situation isn't pristine for it is punk and metal like doing the things you love is punk and metal but it's not about numbers you can't obsess over metrics and achievement and success it's about exercising awareness like paying attention to the world around you and getting zen which to me means like finding peace in your passion it's fucking punk and metal dude i know it really is we are i don't know who we are if you came because you're like i want to hear these bitches rip olivia munn apart i'm sorry we i'm sorry that we're grown and listen come back in march we'll probably be haters again but probably come back next week i don't remember who we're covering next week i can only handle but so many more days of cold and i only got back from mexico yesterday but as of today for now For now, winter birding is punk and metal, but it's not about numbers. It's about exercising awareness and getting zen. You heard it here first. And now I exchanged birding for Celebrity Memoir Book Club. (laughs) 
It's not about numbers. It's about exercising awareness and getting zen. Dude, I'm about to get that whole thing just like tattooed on me. I, know, I don't I know why it. it like struck me so no, hard. I was so walking good. and it like it like swept me off my feet. I was like, Bug, you will not believe what I am reading. If you could read, you would lose your fucking mind right now. I'm so glad you can't. I don't know that you can handle it. She exercises a lot of awareness, but I don't think she's zen about it. Okay, so then she gets into No Beige Homes, which is just about a renovation she did on their North Carolina beach house during the pandemic. But I do love the mentality. She goes, growing up, we all had the same house. We all lived in areas that had very similar layouts. The only difference was like what color you chose to paint your house. And that's what a home was. And she goes, these days, everybody paints their house white and beige. Because it's all about the resale value. I really agreed with this. Like, I'm loving the backlash against beige moms. There was this woman who, like, painted her daughter's Barbie castle beige or, like, neutrals. And there's just, like, this whole existence around, like, making things aesthetic and not making things, like, true. Like, my childhood bedroom was bright purple in a way that is, like, truly to my eyes. Like, maybe one of the reasons I was fine with my parents selling my house. It was unfixable. It was like unfixable in a way where I was like being home actually stresses me out. There's like a weird comfort when I see that color of purple now, but like sleeping inside of it, I was like, I actually can't sleep. I'm wide awake. No matter how dark you make this room, I can still feel the purple. (laughs) She says somewhere along the way, the tidal wave of home improvement and real estate television shows convinced everyone that the value of a home was in its resale price point, that you should be thinking of the next buyer even while living the home yourself. And that neutral was the only way to appear upscale and get a good price for your home. To this, I scream with fury, bullshit. We've been conditioned to live in a world of pale gray and contractors beige. It's dystopian. Ask any human out there what their favorite color is and only the most emo of creatures will say gray. As for beige, no one. Literally not one human will say beige. So why do we do this to ourselves? It is so true that like there is this weird obsession with timelessness and I get like financially being like, well, I can't buy new shit every time my tastes change. But like, you know, who you are in a way. Like, I bought an orange couch because I was like, I really think that I'm going to like this orange couch for a really long time. You don't have an orange couch. I have an orange couch. What's my couch? Ochre. Okay. We have very different orange couches, but they're orange all the same. It is something very specific that I think when you're buying a couch, people would say, well, what's the couch that's going to like last you the longest? And I do think that even when I don't want an orange couch anymore, I'll still think fondly about the version of me that was like so fucking excited to have an orange couch, even when I was having to like sleep as a 27 year old in a bright purple room. As much as it like disgusted my eyeballs, I was still very like fond of the 11-year-old who was so excited to have a purple room. I was just going to say, one thing Leandra Medin says that I actually really agree with and believe is being anti-timelessness and loving a trend. And obviously, there's a difference between overconsumption and Shein, but having like a personal trend and allowing yourself to go wholeheartedly into a passion because there's something so cute about like looking at a photo of yourself from college and being like, oh my God, that's when I thought the best thing to do with my hair was to like straighten it and bleach it and then be like, oh my God. And I went through that phase where I was only wearing super skinny jeans and like a belt on top of my shoulder. Like, I don't know. There's something so funny when you look at a little kid, you're like, oh, that was your Superman phase. That was this phase. Or even because she talks about it in relation to wedding dresses, right? And right now there's like an obsession with making your wedding so timeless, even though like... It can't be. It can't be. Because you can't see the, the time that you're in. It's like water. And also what's so bad about something being so tied to a time, you have a wedding date and an anniversary. How fun is it looking at everyone's mom's wedding photos and going like, wow, our moms all wore the same fucking thing. Even if they didn't, 
Even if they didn't, like when I see, God, my grandma and grandpa, their wedding photos, like my grandma wore this dress that is so of that time, but it's so like beautifully of that time that I'm just like, I look at it and I'm like, oh yeah, if someone wore that today, I'd be like, huh, okay. But it's still so fun. It's still so fun to look at it. And I'm like, they are just like gorgeous wedding photos of a gorgeous wedding that was like in the 50s. It'd be so fucking weird if I look at it and I said, was that photo taken yesterday? But then how come my grandma's in it? And she got married in the 50s. Yeah. So then she has this little thing called candle magic. And this how she's always been obsessed with candles. And then she heard about her grandmother, who's Appalachian, who apparently could just like whisper into somebody's ear and their burn would just go away. And she was so sad that she would never learn the magic of it all. And then when she got pregnant, she had a distant cousin, a male family member, call her and say, I can tell you what the magic is, but you can't tell anybody. And apparently... Magic can only go girl, boy, girl, boy. Yeah, I did not know that. So magic has to be passed from like a woman to a man to a woman to a man generation over generation. So like, I guess she like won't be able to tell her daughter any magic. Or is that why she named her daughter George to try to trick the spirits? Then she says, we have all practiced a little candle magic. Maybe you've lit a votive in church or set out candles for romantic dinner or at the very least stuck some birthday candles in a cake and sung. See, that's what I was saying. And then she goes through what all the different colors of candles mean. I don't really care. And then she talks about some things like you can carve an intention or a word into a candle. Then when it burns, it'll come true or whatever. That's nice. I should do that. I should carve into candles. Yeah, why not? Literally, why not? (laughs) So now she talks about moving to Delaware for One Tree Hill. Not Delaware. North Carolina. Oh, I thought Wilmington was Delaware. Wilmington, North Carolina. That's also where they did Dawson's Creek. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, because North Carolina, they do a lot of filming, right? Yeah, but also this town, I think, is like weirdly just like a big production town. And I think there was like an era when they were doing these kids shows about small towns that they were just shooting in these small towns. Cute. So One Tree Hill, a show famously named after a song by the band U2. Is that true? Yes. Filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina. And Hillary Burton played Peyton Sawyer, one of the main characters. She was a valedictorian who gets pregnant, right? No, that's Joy Lentz, Bethany Joy Lentz. She was like the punk girl who had like a music blog and like this weird live stream thing. It was all like kind of pervy, to be honest. But her character was a cheerleader who was like super into punk music and then ended up running a club and dating Pete Wentz at one point. Amazing. If you're like, oh, my God, why does Ashley think the things she thinks are cool are cool? It's because of Peyton. It influenced. (sighs) And then also, I feel like Hillary Burton herself before she was on One Tree Hill, was like an MTV VJ, which you know used to be my like number one career goal. Just like Cameron Diaz in In Her Shoes. And I just want to say, I got a lot of fucking flack for not knowing the stats and the data and the metadata on In Her Shoes. (laughs) And I just want to say, if you're outraged by my lack of information about a movie I watched one time 16 years ago, you can absolutely go suck your own dick and get the fuck out of here. I don't need you here. You can go start your own fucking podcast about In Her Shoes defending its right to live. I would love, I would listen to that. (laughs) (laughs) But don't ever come to my comment section again and tell me I need to study up on Tony Collette because of In Her Shoes. (laughs) Because of In Her Shoes, (laughs) specifically. Anyway, I think overall that general lore was very inspiring to me as a teen. Mm-hmm. So she was living in Wilmington and she like got an apartment above a bar that she heard was legendary. But then she lived there and she was like, this bar is actually not legendary. It's just a bar. And I don't think there's much there there. So she finds a house that she like immediately finds out is full on haunted. And so she goes outside and day one, she meets this man named Rabbi George, who's her neighbor. And they become like very good friends. And the first thing he says to her is, I have this 
huge garden in the backyard. If you ever want to come pick flowers, be happy. And I was like, what an offer. What an offer. Can you imagine? This chapter made me love her so much because she's just this 21-year-old girl and the way that she becomes such a part of her community by moving into this house and tending to it and building flowers and meeting the neighbors and getting involved in the history and the community. I'm like, this is what human beings are lacking. Yes. I'm about to fucking meet my neighbors. She's not someone who's like, I'm fascinated by the story. Like she's not eating people's stories. She's like experiencing people's lives and providing comfort and storytelling. Do you know what I mean? I think that there's some people who like think that it's a quirky thing to just be like, I love listening to people's stories. But like, what are you internalizing? And like, what are you experiencing about these stories? So she very quickly realizes the house is haunted and she doesn't mind, but her boyfriend and brother are freaked out. But she goes to Rabbi George and says, who's haunting my house? And he goes, oh, that's Hester Donnelly. She was an artist and uh, she sounds like a lesbian, to be honest, but she was like a kooky old lady who loved reading and painting and taught art classes and started the local museum and through these legendary parties. And her obituary had this phrase that I fucking loved, gruff but wonderful. Yeah. And I'm like, what a way to be described. Like, what a beautiful way to describe somebody. And she was taught by this woman, Elizabeth Chant, who had also come as a woman and had a friend and taught art and acted crazy and didn't care and did seances and learned about Buddhism and just brought culture and lived her life as she wanted to. And her and this woman, Hester, became partners in crime and starting this museum. And she just felt so connected to that history of rebellious young women who love the arts and host these parties. And she said it inspired me to like have all these parties in my home where I can invite artists and different people to meet and discuss. She ends up buying the house on Nun Street. She says every time I did something different, I could feel her rattling around all pissed off. Yeah. I don't know if I would have been as bold about venturing out in the community if I didn't have Hester as my guide. My search for her led me to neighbors, to the theater community, the Cameron Art Museum, the Public Library, and the Hannah Block Community Art Center. Hester lived this big, full life in a tiny town, paving the way for me to do the same. There would be no Mischief Farm or the Rural Diaries if there hadn't been the mystery of Hester Donnelly on Nun Street. Once I'd earned my stripes as an accepted member of the neighborhood, elderly neighbors up the street invited me over for an ice cream social and showed me a watercolor painting Hester had done with a newspaper clipping of her obituary taped to the back. In it, she's described as gruff and wonderful. What an absolute legend. I mean, that's just like, may we all. May we all find our Hester Donnellys, you know? Then she goes into parties and potions, which is, listen, I like it. How do you bottle the feelings? Like, how do you create these potions for yourself? But it's also kind of an ad for her liquor brand. (laughs) Don't they all have one? They have to. I don't begrudge her for it. You gotta. But I was just saying, like, what a fucking little life she lives. I have never been somebody who was at all called to, like, the trad wife appeal or, like, the, I don't know, ballerina farms, that woman with eight kids who's just making, like, but that's not what this is. Her life specifically, I'm like, should me and Mac move to Hudson and raise our children and I'll pick my own blueberries every day and make my own liquor and have these parties and make these friends. And she writes books and produces films and everything she wants to do, she's doing. And she, I just am like, but what, that's what it is. It's because it's everything she wants to do. She's doing. And like, you're a city girl. So like, what are the things that you want to be doing? I want to be on the subway. I want to be going mano a mano with a rat. I want to <laughs> eat pizza late at night. You can do I want to say this town isn't dangerous. Shut your fucking mouth and just walk faster. <laughs> I'll stab you if you say that again. Don't question me about the safety of this town. <laughs> so then we get into paper mail, a place where she 
kind of just writes an ode to mail. She loves letter writing. And when you love letter writing, you send letters. I will say I love paper mail. And it made me very happy to like have the people who got my holiday card DM me and be like, I got the mail. Like, I think that that's a fun thing to get in the mail. And I felt very good about spending all of my disposable income on stamps. <laughs> I mean, but she does talk about the beauty of being able to keep that and see their handwriting and like the age of the paper and like their feelings and stuff. And it's so true. It, it has a beauty that very few other things have. There's something so lovely yeah. about being able to go over those letters time and time again. I will say my mom always did very beautiful Christmas cards for us. They're always like handmade. Yeah. And I didn't realize that nobody else was doing that. Oh, wow. No, I've never even seen a handmade Christmas card once in my life. They were like hand collaged. She writes about how there's something about mail where you like write your feelings down and then once it's gone, it's gone. Like even if you're going to second guess how you felt in that moment, like the way you felt in that moment is now on paper and you did feel that way in that moment and that's why it's written down and now it's been shipped and it's been sent and there's nothing you can do to change what was recorded in that moment in time. Joy Lenz was another outstanding writing partner. Gifted with an aesthetic that is super feminine and nostalgic and whimsical, Joy creates full art pieces with her letters. She'll cut out flowers from magazines and snippets of poetry and decorate the paper before adding her loopy cursive handwriting. We worked together on One Tree Hill every day, and yet when there were emotional or truly thoughtful things that needed to be said, Joy would gift them to me in a letter to keep forever. How sweet. And then she talks about the Johnsons, who were the couple I talked about who started her high school, and how they were a ballast to my conservative, very Republican family. They were the most radical people I knew. The Johnsons did not have biological children, but they had produced crops of teenagers in Sterling Park, Virginia that absolutely belonged to them, period. In an environment that had become increasingly unstable for me, they represented unconditional love and support. That mail from Mr. Johnson, as from so many other people who have wandered in and out of my life, is a crystallized visit with the person who sent it. How sweet is that? He would send her quotes and wisdom and anecdotes. Next up is The Coven You Keep. Which we love because it's about best friends. I am a collector of powerful women. I'm stronger and smarter and more confident in my own skin for knowing them. They're my ride or dies, my army, my squad. You could also say they are my coven. I didn't initially set out to create a coven. Thinking back on my group of girlfriends in high school, I would have never called us that. Here we are in our early 40s and we still refer to ourselves as the Squatches. That's based on an inside joke. A Squatch Fest is a getaway from husbands and children and work and all the responsibilities that turn our hair gray. It allows us to return to our 15-year-old selves. Last time they all got together, they all like randomly got a tattoo. They sound so fun. And this is what we were talking about. You have to set dates with your friends and like, Make it a priority the way you would make family reunions and Christmas a priority. I think another thing that is really important, and this might be controversial, but I think it's to acknowledge growth and change. And like, even though having a strong group, you have to maintain closeness with the people who like you are growing with. And like, that might mean adding new people and groups fluctuate. And I think that that's okay too. Thinking about Lobster Fest, like we do every summer that you do at your beach house, it like is a fluctuating group. But it's the energy remains the same. Yes, it is like a bachelorette with no bride. Yeah. And so she talks about those friends. And then she talks about these women she met on One Tree Hill, her hairdresser and her makeup artist, and how she found out that they were really into witchcraft and stuff. And they became their own coven. And she says, it's important to note here that I had known both of these women for years, but it wasn't until I opened myself up and put out the energy of curiosity that we all started sharing ideas. Lessons learned. Open up if you want to deepen your interactions. That's so true. Be curious about people. Be willing to be open. Get goofy and get silly. This is, I think, one of the issues people face when finding friends that I didn't realize until I read this book. But we get a lot of questions about adult friendship and how you find friends as an adult. And like you have to seek these activities and like connect with people and like repeatedly run into the same people in order to like form these lasting bonds. But I think part of it cannot be like setting out for friendship. It has to be like setting out for like 
conversation. Like you can't be seeking to add friends into your circle or like into your life. You can't be like, I am in search of a friend. You have to be like, I'm in search of the reason activities are such a great place to meet people because you have to be like, I am in search of strength in a yoga class. I'm in search of skill in a pottery class. Like I'm in search of playfulness in a dodgeball league. Like you have to like look for these things and then share, be open to ideas and stories and things. And that's how you find people. It's not about being like, I need a friend. Well, you know what I also think it is here? And I was just talking to somebody else about this. I think you make friends in school because you're stuck together every day mm-hmm. and you just keep bopping into each other until you find something in common. And here, what I think is so important is that she knew these women and saw them daily every day for two years. And it wasn't until they opened up and found this facet of each other where they had commonality and a common interest that they were really bonded. Sarah Lazarus is a comedian. I don't know if she's still doing it. She might actually be out in LA, but I remember one time she used to do this bit about how she doesn't want an app to introduce her to new people to date. She wants an app that like shows her a new side of someone she already knows. Yeah. And I do think be open to your coworkers. Be open to the people that you see every day. And instead of finding a new person that you're going to hit it off with off the bat, maybe like find a new point of interest with somebody you already know. Yeah. And then she talks about plants lined up and she says, with people, you line up together and you'll be more beautiful, just like those plants. Celestial bodies. So this is another one about like kind of categorization and your favorite moon or your favorite planet. Sorry, hers is the moon, which isn't a planet, which is like a little bit cheating, but it's fine. Can I also say this felt less interesting to me because again, she's talked about if you liked each of the planets, which was your favorite planet, what that probably said about you. And going back to my original thing about water, I felt like I could participate in the water one because I know water already and I could let whatever naturally draws me to a body of water draw me. Whereas I don't like basing what planet I like off of her descriptions because, again, she's only saying a couple of things that are highlighted to her and all planets have infinite facets of interest. Then this is, again, back to my point of like figuring out the things that you like and like how you can apply those to people in their stories because I think that that is more impactful than like I'm not a big planet girl, you know. Mm -hmm. Okay, then she gets into synchronicities, which is basically just when things happen randomly. And like all match each other and – The way this book came together involved a lot of synchronicities. A lot of the people that she wanted to reconnect with synchronized with the, you know, finding of paintings by Hester. And there's a lot of things that fell in line. Basically, like, yeah, for this book, she randomly got butt dialed by Rabbi George, who helped her write the chapter about Hester. And then when she was nervous about starting her podcast, she got a painting by Hester randomly. And then, like, all these things happened. And she goes, have you ever heard of synchronicity? The simultaneous occurring of events that appear significantly related but have no discernible causal connection. Basically, it's a big cosmic sign from the universe that things are lining up, stay on the path. And I want to say two things about this chapter because I think like, I don't know, it's not that interesting, all the little things lined up for her. But I think the takeaways are one perspective mm-hmm. is like allowing yourself to see yeses. Yes. I listened to a podcast one time actually about, you know, when like you learn a word for the first time and then you hear it used three and you're like, I've never heard of this word before. I just learned the definition. And now I'm hearing it everywhere. And just how you hear your name so much. How you hear. Or even if somebody's like, oh, I just got a Tesla. And then suddenly you're seeing Teslas everywhere. And you're like, what are the chances? And when I had a Hyundai Elantra, you will not believe how many Hyundai Elantras I see. Yeah. And like, so there is a real thing. And they were talking about like manifestation, why it's important to like verbalize what you want. And basically, there's just so many stimuli every day in the world that your brain is filtering out what it's looking for. Like when you're looking for Where's Waldo or whatever, it really is that situation where they all start appearing. When you're looking for the color orange, you see it everywhere because you're looking for it specifically and it's always been there. And so kind of this idea of manifesting and putting things out there is like you're priming your brain to look for what's already been there the whole time. Yeah. And I do think like that is true. But if you want an opportunity of a certain kind of job and you're like talking about it and you're putting it out there and you're like working towards it, like that job exists somewhere. 
It's just about finding it. And I think one, she has primed herself to allow herself to see things that reinforce what she wants to be true. Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, you can do it in both ways. You can always prove like everybody hates me and then you find all the evidence that people hate you. But if you choose to like look for the evidence that that's not true, you're going to be better off. And then the other thing I think she's good about is the synchronicity of, oh, this person butt dialed me, but wouldn't you believe it? I wanted to hear from him anyway. She like follows up and calls the small connections. Every time you run into someone and say, oh, we should get coffee. She gets the coffee. And then if you get coffee with enough people, it turns out their sister's friend needs someone to work at her gallery. And you've always wanted to be an art gallerist and it all works out. Yeah. And it is about just like looking for the positive connections in her life and like the way things all draw together. And I think that those things are so important to her that the fact that she's like primed to look for them and then she finds them and then she writes them down. And I think that's another thing that's so important is writing them down. Like, like, have you heard of like the thank you more please theory? No. Of like dating, which I think you can apply to everything where like you have a positive interaction with someone that you like think is hot or whatever. And you say like, thank you more please. And it like opens you up to like finding more of these like flirty little positive moments in your everyday life that like aren't from dating apps. And so then you are like speaking into existence, these like real life connections. And I think that those are all things that are just like essentially it all boils down to looking at and celebrating the positive moments in your life and like welcoming more of them. Yeah. Which is good. We're really on one, huh? (laughs) I know. Where are we? It's like New Year's disease, but I like it and I hope it sticks. Then she has write your own eulogy. Oof. We eulogize the things we love and they're no longer with us. It's how we show our reverence. And she's like, so we do it for the people we love, but why aren't you doing it for yourself? And she's like, do you ever feel like you don't have like a fun and exciting life? Like write down your exciting and like wonderful moments. A reminder that I'm fiercely alive. This is my reminder that there are surprises around every bend. My reminder that I'm not some soft and squishy old lady. I'm a mischievous, daring tornado of a woman. And I made a beautiful mess during my time here. And so she like just does a little list of like some of the really exciting and notable things she's been a part of. And like, of course, she's a famous person. So her moments are like, you know, moments. But I think everyone has these moments where you're like, wow, I can't believe I did that. But how often do you think about them? Also, she says, you know, a eulogy is going to be based on the people's relationship to you. Like if you're a parent, what a great parent you are. If you're a great spouse, a great employee, a great friend. But she goes, who are you to yourself? Mm -hmm. And that's a really interesting question. What am I excited that I did for me? Totally. One of the most powerful elements to a successful grimoire is the act of remembering. We write down the knowledge we collect from others so that we may remember, but don't forget to remember yourself. Beautiful. So then she gets into look to antiquity. Okay, this was actually the one chapter I like couldn't finish. This one was kind of boring, but there was this one part where she talks about this landscape architect named Toshi Yano, where I feel like they're in all of these more random books. There is something where I'm like, where's your fucking memoir? (laughs) Toshi Yano had been hired in 2018. He was a landscape architect. Toshi was a bassist in multiple hardcore bands in the 1990s and early 2000s before touring with Franz Ferdinand for a stint. And now he's a landscape architect. And like a fancy one. Like they're at an estate of estates. Basically, this chapter is about how one of her best friends from Hudson, Tara, it turns out her godfather was the inheritor of the Citibank fortune. And she's like, whoa, she was randomly so rich. And she's helping her turn that estate into like an artist colony. The grandfather. Actually, he did have kind of an interesting life. He was quite a good guy, it sounds. As as good a guy you can be as the Citibank heir can be. But anyway, he had told his life story in... Greek mythology statues. And that was very meaningful to her. And it found her at a time in her life when she cared a lot about mythology. He had these like incredible gardens spreading throughout this thousands of square acres estate. So this guy was hired to cultivate these gardens, which is quite an undertaking. So to be like that high level of a landscape architect or like garden expert 
and also have been like a hardcore bassist. I'm just like, let me into that noggin for a second. I really am jealous of people who have gardens because I think it really speaks to a quality that I am desperate to have, which is a calm, consistent, long-term devotion that's mm-hmm. like steady. And that's something I'm not, I feel. So I hope one day I die with a garden because that'll mean I've really done something for myself. Can I say, I think you should start I think I'm going to start with an herb garden outside my window in the backyard. I think you should because I think that like as as someone who recently acquired a backyard, it is like a multi-year endeavor of like the first year just like kind of figuring out what the vibe is back there. And then like next year, I kind of know what I want to try, like the tiny steps I want to try to achieve to make it like a little bit more like lush. I love that you can't rush it. I find that so amazing about plants that those wildflower gardens, there's nothing to do but time. And I love things that you can't buy your way out of. You can't buy like a wild overgrown garden. You just have to grow it for years. Yeah. So anyway, she loves this guy because she recognizes that this guy sees himself in Greek mythology and she sees herself in Greek mythology. And she says, the same way I'd seen myself in Medusa, Mr. Stillman had made sense of the tragic stories in his life by looking towards antiquity. It's a soothing practice. We cry out in pain and the echoes bounce back to us through thousands of years. You are not alone. Many have stood here, even the gods. And then she gives us a list of female gods to pick from if you're looking for a fave. Flower power. Oh my God. And this is just about how much she loves flowers and working with them and how amazing it's been. And a woman she loved died, an older woman. And that woman had the most incredible garden. And so to her, every time she sees these flowers, it's like finding the strength of that woman she admired. And she finds a lot of power in like learning the meanings of flowers and sending people bouquets that have like a very specific message to them based on the flowers you've chosen for that bouquet. Oh my God. And she was tending to these flowers and there was a bee inside of a rose and the flower was giving comfort to the bee and she wants to be a flower that comforts honeybees. So then she has a chapter called Find Your Muse, which I love. Me too. Okay. I became a bit fixated on muses in my early 20s because to be perfectly frank, I wanted one. Whom was I making art for? What did I want to capture? I lived in a sleepy little town and so I poured over the books trying to find the answer. Since then, I've had a number of muses, other women who I think are just so fucking electric that I want to create something that lives up to the energy they put out into the world. I love that definition of a muse. Me too. Because there are people where like, I think that you can see someone and be jealous of them or you can see someone and like feel a type of way. I don't know. There's something about like harnessing the energy that someone else brings out in you and being like, what can I create from this? I also think the difference of calling them a muse versus an inspiration, because I think often if you look up to someone and they're an inspiration to you, the power dynamic puts you beneath them and it makes you insecure and you're like trying to live up to what they've done. But if you say, well, they're my muse. I don't want to be like, now you own them, but it's like putting them in your pocket. It makes you feel stronger. I feel like it's a symbiotic relationship because she talks about how muses are often identified as these like helpless women who like inspire men. And she's like, that's not true. A muse is like a very powerful person who like inspires art and creation in the world around them. And like someone who finds a muse is someone who is creating art and like feeling inspired. She talks about this woman who's a poet from the 1800s who was her own muse and often wrote poems dedicated to herself through the like lens of a man, which I think is cool. And then she goes through all the muses in her life. Like her husband's her acting muse because he loves it so much and it makes her appreciate it more. She's a friend who's her like motherhood muse. She just has all these people that she respects and thinks do such a great job and she calls them her muse. Yeah. The practice of having a muse isn't about being obsessed with anyone in particular. It's about acknowledging the magical sparkly things that other people emit and letting those things multiply within yourself. You never need to speak to your muse to be inspired by them. She also says that once that she was at this acting convention for One Tree Hill and this woman came up to her and said, you shouldn't be an actor. Like you're good at it, but your gift is seeing people. And she felt so seen in that moment because she does feel like that's what she's good at, that she's magnetic and 
You know, she's like, I'm not a good driver. I'm not a good singer. There's a ton of things I'm bad at, but I do think I like see the good in everybody. And that is my skill. And she goes, if you're wondering what your thing is, compliment the people around you. She goes, nothing begets compliments like complimenting someone. Yeah. Also, complimenting the people around you is, I think, such an interesting way to like look at the qualities you value. She says, all these people that I put on a pedestal, they are the people who make me want to be more. The people who make me want to go out there, take the world by storm, knowing I have powerful examples and inspiration to back me up. I love. Me too. And then she kind of walks through her deck of I loved this. People she's inspired by. And I think that there's a lot to be said about like journaling and list making and like gratitude lists. But I think there's so many other kinds of lists that you can be making in order to like inspire and like stroke creativity within yourself. I do feel like this book was very much about romanticizing the the advice that everyone always gives. Mm -hmm. To keep a list of quotes that inspire you feels like nothing new. But the idea of turning them into a little deck of cards with pictures and art so that when you're feeling down, you can pull one out. They all feel so like such daily but yet lifetime practices. And she's like, make one a year. Just every year, make one new card. And then, you know, pretty soon you'll have a larger day. I don't know. There's something very sweet about it. It's fun. And then she has a whole thing about enchanting your food and about, I don't know. This one to me feels like the most obvious one just because, yeah, as we said, your grandma's cooking. Totally. And she gives us a recipe, which, you know, maybe I'll try. So then this final chapter is about all the death that had happened in her life during COVID and not even COVID specific, but she was really close with Willie Garson, who plays Stanford on Sex in the City. And he was also in White Collar. And they were good friends and how painful that was. And she just lost a few friends and about how painful that was for her. And like the way that you take people and make them a part of your story forever and the way that they're, again, like their positive qualities can like light a spark inside of you and the way like by creating a grimoire. So he actually wrote a book. I'm very interested when this book comes out. Without even intending to, Willie left us a grimoire. He had collected his knowledge and his experiences, his favorite things, and he bundled them up so that we could feel his love. It was an inheritance. He had done a list of every restaurant and every dish and every drink he thought you needed to have in New York and New Orleans. Yeah. And like that is a way of showing love. Yes. That is a grimoire. I, I never really thought, I was like, that is something so, so like, here are the things you have to go do. Yeah. There's a ripple effect to true magic. Who was I without the loving mentorship of Bruce Johnson? Who was Hester without the eccentric Elizabeth Chant in her life? Who was Tara without the sensitive and creative message her grandfather Chauncey Stillman left her to decode? There is a ripple effect to true magic. Drop a pebble in the water and you will see the rings of impact expand and multiply. That's what we're doing here. Each spell, each intention, each action is a dropped pebble. We can't control who we are or what our ripple effects will touch, but we know the circles of love and inheritance are one and the same. Also, if we're lucky, we absorb the impact left by others collect it in our own personal grimoires with enthusiasm and good intentions and then drop it when our time is over sending brand new rings of magic out into the world so the thing with this book is you don't learn a lot about the facts of her life like you don't learn very much about when she decided to become an actress and like when she moved out to LA and how she got her VJ job and how she got cast on One Tree Hill but I feel like you learn so much about who she is as a person And that's why it still worked as an effective memoir. Like, even though it was very external and, like, really broadcast itself out. Are you crying again? I just read a sentence that really (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, guys. I'm, like, really in a raw place. (laughs) Okay. So at the end, she does this afterward. And she talks about how they, like, were able to raise a lot of money so that they could build a new school for the high school students because there had been all these leaks. She talks about how... Even though they were knocking down the halls of her Ithaca, like what she thinks of home, it's like the home was in her heart. It's not the walls. It's like the energy of these kids being so excited. And so that lives on. And then she got a call that Rabbi George died from his sister. 
And first of all, she's just like, it was so kind of her to even tell me. And then this is the sentence that fucking knocks me out. I wrote back and thanked Lynn and tried to find the words to explain to her that I thought the world of her brother. The reuniting with him over ghost stories for this book was so much more than just storytelling. It was an act of bearing witness to each other's lives. She responded to me. He loved being able to defend, protect, and enjoy your personality as you were becoming you. I don't know. That's really beautiful. Defend, protect, and enjoy your personality as you were becoming. Like, that's a really beautiful sentiment. It's a really beautiful thing to feel about someone because I think we hold each other to such a standard, but like everyone is becoming themselves and everyone is growing. And so to be able to like defend and protect and enjoy someone as they are like becoming the person they're meant to be is like such an act of love. My sincere hope for you, dear reader, is that you create something that holds all your loves, all your knowledge, and all your magic, and that it fills your cup and feeds your life, that it protects you and reminds you how absolutely incredible you are. And when you are ready, I hope that you pass that inheritance along, filling up other cups and leaving mischief in your wake. I don't know. I literally, I was just, <laughs> I actually shed tears on the plane last night and I, it was a long again, travel. just now. It was a long travel day. Um, I feel like now I welled up, but yesterday I was like, actual tears came out which is a rarity for me when I read I think I get emotional and well but I don't always like break the viscous or whatever yeah I don't know it really hit me in a moment she's a lucky bitch that Hillary Burton but isn't this the magic that she hit me at the right time when I wouldn't be a fucking cunt about it yeah and that is why she's Hillary Burton because somehow she put that in the world she says this book will find you when you're ready for it yeah, and there are books where I wonder, like, are we bitchy about them because they didn't come to us at the right time, or are we bitchy about them because they're bitch-ass books? You know who I want to redo? Who? Demi Moore. Okay. She was, like, our third ever, I think. I know, and I think we owe her more. Okay. Anyway, I know that this has been really not us, but I think maybe being not us is some of the best advice I could give to anybody. <laughs> like I said, I think that we didn't learn about her facts of life, but we always say, like, you don't have to give us those things, but if you're not going to give us like soul, then tell me what the fuck happened. Like, tell me the details if you're not going to give us the heart. Yeah. But this book is the heart of who she is. It really is her grimoire. Like, it was a very effectively a grimoire. It's so funny to compare to the Joanna Gaines book where she was like, have you written down your passage? You know what the difference was? And I was thinking about it this. Mm -hmm. I felt that Joanna Gaines was like, yesterday I realized that being present for my children is super important. And um, it's great. And I'm like, bitch, live that life before you. T I feel that this is a book this is a recipe for the life that Hillary Burton lives that has worked for her. And I believe her. Yes. And that's the difference. She's leaving her inheritance in this story. And the ripple effect will ripple onto us, I hope. I will just say I noticed that there's a lot of talk of her father. I know a lot about her dad. He sold antiques at one point. He was in the Navy at one point. He is helping her move in. Notably absent was her mother. Notably absent was her mother. I guess she has another book. I might read it for the Patreon. And this week on the Patreon, you're definitely going to bring the behind the scenes of it all now. Yeah, I mean, I'll definitely drudge up some uh, One Tree Hill tea. Maybe I'll listen to another episode of Drama Queens. I fucking loved One Tree Hill, man. We'll also be getting into all the drama of the week. We have a lot to catch up on. Yeah. Anyway, we'll see you at our shows. We'll see you in our dreams. We'll see you in the fields of beautifully tended to roses that took generations to grow. Totally. And extra roses this week to our beautiful five-star reviewers. Thank you so much to our incredible five-star reviewers, M. The Egg. Oh, my God. You are the cutest little egg I've ever seen. I can't wait to just crack you open. And Bug's number one fan. Oh, my God. Honestly, she's yours back. Blue J. Oh, sorry. Just Boo J. Well, I just joined Birdwatching Club. And let me tell you what. I will be walking around the park waiting to spot you. Indy's auntie. Indy is the luckiest baby in town. I'll tell you that much. 
Kara Amazing. Well, I find you double amazing. That is all for this week. Thank you guys so much. I love you so much. And I cannot wait to see you next week.